Our scripture text this morning is from Hebrews chapter 12. We're looking at verses 1 through 3 together this morning. But before reading from God's Word, let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our great and faithful triune God, we pray that our worship services would always be filled with that focus that is upon you, Father, Son, and Spirit. We thank you for the wonder of the covenant of grace, for the hope of electing salvation, for the finished work of our Savior upon the cross and His continued mediation on our behalf and intercession of the Holy Spirit, the one who takes the work of Christ and tenderly applies, and even now giving us eyes to see as we look to you to help us understand and draw comfort and peace from the truth of your word. In the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand together, if you will, for the reading of God's Word. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word of our God, you may be seated. Throughout the New Testament, there are several metaphors that are used to describe the nature of the Christian life. We are called sojourners as we think about our identity as those who are traveling through this present age toward a heavenly home that awaits us. We are referred to as exiles because, in a sense, we are displaced people awaiting the inheritance that is to come in Christ our Savior. The Christian life is also likened to a battle or a spiritual war as we are very much engaged in the fight against the foolish and false thinking of the world around. And here in Hebrews chapter 12, among other places in the New Testament, the Christian life is likened to a race in which the charge is clearly one of perseverance, to press on through the strength of the Lord, to endure because an end is certainly coming. Let's remember that the writer of Hebrews throughout this entire book is exhorting and encouraging the people of God to keep their zeal for Christ Jesus. Just as they are facing times of discouragement, doubts, and temptations to just give up on the Christian life, to wonder if it's really worth it to keep going. Is it really worth the sacrifice? These are the questions that can oftentimes enter our own minds today. Is it really worth giving up all of the pleasures of this world? Is it worth it to deny myself, to take up my cross daily and to follow Christ, to give all of my affections wholeheartedly to my Savior? And so this image of a runner persevering in this long endurance type race is a fitting image to help us understand some very important things about the nature and the calling of the Christian life. I know some of you are runners. I see you as I'm driving up to my study early in the morning, sometimes in the late afternoons or evenings, and it's impressive to see some of you even miles away from where you live. But I have to admit, you never look happy. 
there's always a look of straining and sometimes pain upon your face. From the outside looking in to a non-runner, it might appear as though you don't quite have your sanity together, just as I suppose an unbeliever might question us for our devotion to the Lord. You might be surprised by looking at me, but I'm not much of a runner, though I do have one year of middle school track under my belt, and it wasn't the most pleasant experience I've ever had. The track coach convinced me that I should run the mile. At that point, it was the longest race, and none of the other returning kids from last year wanted to enter for good reason, as I soon found out. I still remember that first track meet in which I was completely ill-prepared. I was able to stay with the pack for maybe the first lap or so, that my lungs were on fire and felt like my chest were ex- about to explode, but I quickly faded to the back. And the goal at that point was no longer about a ribbon, but just trying to avoid embarrassment as much as possible. And I thought, well, at least finishing is probably better than dropping out. The one saving grace was that when I crossed the finish line, they weren't getting ready for the next race yet, and I couldn't figure out why, and remembered, oh, there's another kid even further behind me. So at least I wasn't the last one. And the thing that got me out of the rest of the track season was getting chicken pox, so It was only an experience I had to endure once. So what is it that will encourage us to press on in that race that is set out for us? What will help us when we feel like dropping out, when we wonder if it's really worth it, if we can really do it? Is the sacrifices that I'm called to make really worth following the Lord? And these few short verses from Hebrews chapter 12 are really packed full of wonderful encouragement to us. First, there are some things that we can say about this race itself. And this is our first point this morning, the nature of the race. What are some things that we can say about the nature of this race? And how does that help us understand the nature of the Christian life? Well, first, we are all in this race. That is, all believers in Christ are participants in this race. And so this charge to persevere, this charge to press on, is not something that's optional for those super-Christians to compete in. This is not the spiritual equivalent of those high achievers who can legitimately put one of those oval 26.2 stickers on the back of their car window. But rather, this analogy captures a universal truth of the Christian life. We are all called to persevere in this race of endurance. It is not optional. And this is important because at various times in life we need encouragement as we're tempted toward apathy or slothfulness, distractions, or even indifference as we fail to see the urgency of persevering. And so this vivid image is so important for us to understand the nature of the Christian life. Now, it could be that some presume that they are in the race but aren't even on the track. I remember reading a number of years ago about a guy who found a shortcut in running a marathon, was found out, and of course was disqualified not only from that marathon but from any legitimate marathon going forward. Obviously a foolish thing that only hurt himself. Our confession of faith addresses the possibility of one who may have false assurance That's not to say that we should go around doubting our assurance, but it could be that some have deceived themselves and presume that they're right with God, but have yet to fully receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation. 
And so the charge really is for everyone to put your faith in Christ, rest upon Him alone for salvation, and then, by necessity, enter into this race that is before us. This is the nature of Christian living. Well, what else can we say about this race? Well, secondly, it lasts our entire life. And so in that, we should think not in terms of a sprint, not a life filled with short bursts here and there that sometimes characterizes the thinking of Christianity for many, bursts of enthusiasm that quickly fade and burn out, but rather think of a marathon, a long-distance race in which we understand that we are in this for the long haul, for our entire earthly life. Now, why is that important to understand? It's important because, again, we all face times of discouragement, and we may go through seasons of wandering in which we need the spurring on of one another to be watchful, to press on, as we saw last week from Hebrews chapter 3. You see, our comfort is that we persevere in the same grace that has saved us. We look to Christ. We depend upon Him for salvation, and we do not trust in ourselves as we press on, as we persevere in the Christian life. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 17, has some wonderful instruction on this doctrine of perseverance of the saints. In paragraph 2, it teaches us that our perseverance does not depend upon anything within us, but it depends upon God's immutable decree of election, the unchangeable love of God, the merits and intercession of Christ Jesus, the deposit of the Holy Spirit within. You hear that triune language reflected there, don't you? It's every person of the Godhead that works perseverance in the life of the believer. As paragraph 2 goes on, all because of and through the covenant of grace. And I think we could add to this that the goal of the race is in many ways somewhat modest. As we'll see, it is Christ who has finished this race for us, who has already won this race on our behalf. Now, I'm not a fan of the everybody's a winner and so here's your trophy kind of competition, but here there's a sense in which the goal and the objective is merely to finish and to finish well, because the same inheritance awaits all of those who are in Christ Jesus. We do not finish in our own strength as this race lasts our earthly life. But another thing that we could say about this race is that we are not alone. The writer of Hebrews points out that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, in this great cloud of witnesses, the writer of Hebrews has, of course, chapter 11 in mind, that wonderful hall of faith. But it's not so much that those who have preceded us into glory are looking down upon us and cheering us on. I would argue that those who are in the presence of Christ are so enraptured with the beauty and glory and excellencies of Christ that they're not peering down upon our lives, but instead we are surrounded by those witnesses as we look back through redemptive history. And as we do that, what do we see? Well, we see sinners just like us who wavered, sinners who struggled, sinners who went through periods of doubt, but in the end they bore faithful witness to their God and Savior who enabled them to persevere. And so be encouraged by those who have preceded you into glory. 
Those who are here clearly finish the race by faith in Christ. They didn't finish in their own strength. They didn't finish in their own insight, self-discipline, ingenuity. This list in Hebrews 11 is full of failures, but it's full of repentant sinners who looked to the Lord Jesus Christ for cleansing and pardon of sin. And so think of their example in looking to Christ and allow that to be an encouragement to you. If they finished by persevering grace, then so can you. But it's not just those listed here in Hebrews 11 because the Lord continues to work faithfully among His saints even throughout the present age. Sinclair Ferguson says, we need the example of dear, faithful saints among us. We need the gray hairs around us who have run the race and been faithful to the end through their suffering as they persevere through hardship. I'll hear hear this periodically from those who are new to worshiping with us here at Covenant. Why do you quote so frequently from the dead theologians? Ferguson's not dead yet, by the way. But why do you draw upon those who have lived so long ago? One reason is because they have shown themselves to finish well. Too many have faltered in our own time. But we need those who have shown themselves to be faithful, enduring hardship and trial, and working through temptations as they look to their Savior to help them. J.C. Ryle states that millions have gone safely through, and so shall you. And so allow this cloud of witnesses to be an encouragement to you. There's a fourth thing that we can say about this race, and that is it's a race that is set for us, a race that is marked out for us. We're not left to figure out how to live this Christian life on our own, but we have the guidance and direction from the Word of God, which serves as a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. And not only that, but this is a race in God's loving providence that is planned out for each one of us. Our loving and sovereign Lord and God has determined each of our steps, and He will help us when we go through seasons of temptation not to be tempted beyond what we can bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And so this is of great consolation in times of trial, to know that our heavenly Father knows exactly what He's doing in my life, has planned my life, has given me His Word to guide and direct me along that path that He has set out for me. You might think of the example here of a cross-country race through a wooded or hilly area in which you don't know what is going to come next around that bend or over that ridge. And as you run along and you come to that next turn or over the hill, the race continues to be marked out clearly for you on the path that you should go. But it's only as you come to that point do you know where you were supposed to go next. We may not know what lies ahead, but our tender Father in heaven does know, and we can trust Him that the path is marked out for us. And so for us, just keep going, just keep running, just keep persevering. Palmer Robertson says, we don't wander aimlessly as nomads, but as pilgrims toward a goal, the goal of rest from that pilgrimage. And so we listen to the Word of God. We love the Word of God. We long to draw upon His Word more and more knowing that it is through His Word that that path is made clear as we trust in the loving providence 
of God who has set that path for us. And so we're all in this race. It lasts the entirety of this earthly life. It is a race that is marked out for us, a path that is before us. And lastly, as we think about the nature of this race, we could say that it is a race that is going to end, and its end is coming soon. Now, obviously, I don't know a lot about running. I think that's been pretty clear. But this much I do know. It matters a great deal where you look. If you look behind you, you'll veer off course and you'll lose momentum. If you're too preoccupied looking around you because you're overly critical of those who are on either side, then you're prone to injury. If you look down at your stride being too self-focused, then you will stumble. Instead, the best posture is to keep your gaze fixed upon that which is in front of you, to look to that goal. The goal, as we'll see there in verse 2, is Christ Jesus Himself. And to those who were recipients of this original letter, they faced all of those temptations to look elsewhere. They were tempted to look back with longing eyes to the things that they had left behind, just as we face temptations to live for self-indulgence, live for self-gratification, live only for our own wants and desires. They were tempted to look around, perhaps comparing themselves to others, wondering why Others have a more comfortable life than them, wondering why they have to go through hardships and difficulties that seem much more intense than those around. In our own lives, we might think, for example, of the dangers of things like social media creating discontentment within our own lives, sowing seeds of comparisonitis within the heart. Do the distractions of the world around us really help us to cultivate a heart for Christ? Ryle puts it like this, are you more earnest about earthly amusements than the condition of your soul? Are you more comfortable talking about the things of this world than about the things of heaven? Is it nothing to you to neglect being with God's people for the pleasures of the flesh? And so they were tempted to look behind, they were tempted to look around, but they were also tempted to focus too much upon themselves. Maybe it's pride at their own perceived insight. Maybe it's some notion of spiritual maturity in which they have overinflated their own egos. Perhaps it's guilt or shame upon the conscience that continues to weigh upon us because of some notion of past sins and self-loathing. Maybe it's a doubt as you think about how your life has been altered, completely rearranged and reprioritized because of your profession of faith in Christ and again wondering if it are really worth the payoff. Instead, of all of these different places we can look, we are to look to Jesus. We are to keep our gaze fixed upon Him. When Jesus walked upon the water toward His disciples, we read in that gospel narrative that it was dark, very dark, perhaps only the light from the moon gave enough for the disciples to wonder if this really was Jesus or perhaps a ghost coming toward them. And you remember Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Peter began walking on the water toward Christ. But as soon as his gaze shifted to the wind and the waves, as soon as he looked away from Christ to the troubles of this world, he began to be filled with fear and sank within the water. Fix your gaze upon the one who is able 
Fix your gaze upon the one who is worthy. And what can be said with confidence, because this is from the very Word of God, is that whatever you have lost, you have gained so much more in Christ Jesus, the greatest treasure of all. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. To those who don't understand the existence of the treasure, to those who don't understand the value of the treasure, he looks like a madman. He seems completely irrational, but he has a joy and a hope that drives him to pursue that which has infinite value, and his entire life is consumed with possessing that treasure. This is, Jesus says, the very nature of the kingdom of God. Well, undoubtedly, there's more that could be said about the nature of this race, but let's go on and think of a second main point this morning from our text, which is the calling or the charge that is before us. And so, if all in Christ Jesus are participants in this race, if it's something that lasts our entire life, if we're not alone, if it's something that is marked out for us, if it is something that is coming to an end soon, then what is the calling of all of this upon our lives? Well, first, cast aside encumbrances. Lay aside hindrances, as we see in verse 1. You might think of an athlete as he stretches as he's warmed up, as he moves toward the blocks. He lays aside his warm-ups. He wears shoes that are as light as possible. Even his track clothes are form-fitting to avoid wind drag. He puts aside anything that has the possibility of hindering him from focusing upon that goal. And it's important, I think, that we ask ourselves with regularity, What are those things in my life that I have become comfortable with that I should not? What are those things that I have allowed to seep into my heart and gradually take root? What are those potential encumbrances that I need to lay aside? And all of the things that can distract and all of the things that can entangle really fit into one of those three categories of the world, the flesh, and the devil. The evil one knows that he cannot change your status as one who is truly a child of God, but he will do all that he can to rob you of joy, to weigh you down with guilt and shame. There's the evil in the world around that would entice, pull at your desires, tug at the flesh within, and fill us with worthless distractions. There's indwelling sin that we need to continue to deal with in our own minds and hearts, There are the trials that we face, the fierce oppositions of those who have hatred toward Christ and therefore hatred toward His followers. There are afflictions that may come, severe afflictions that could lead us to doubt the love of our Father in heaven. And we might add to these things that hinder. It could be things that aren't in and of themselves sinful, but we know our weaknesses and we recognize that we just don't need those things in our lives because they have the potential of sidetracking us or filling our minds with empty, wasteful things. And we know that dwelling upon those, those vacuous things can make us more susceptible to greater temptation. And so, by God's grace, we want to deal with that sin that can so easily entangle. And we also want to be aware of the things that could potentially hinder us. And such things 
begin to lose their luster when they are compared to the value and worth of Christ. A.W. Pink illustrates it like this, how do you get a child to drop something dirty or harmful to him? If you try to rip it from his hand, he may grip it even tighter. Instead, you offer to him something better, his favorite toy or a treat. How do you get a tired horse to move most quickly? You don't whip him, but you turn his head toward home. You shift his gaze toward rest. Pink goes on, if our hearts are occupied with the sacrificial love of Christ for us, we will drop those things that are displeasing to Him. And the more we dwell upon the joy before us, the more we will have the strength to run with patience the race that is set before us. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2.16 says, Hold fast to the word of life, for on the day of Christ it will be shown that you have not run in vain, you have not labored in vain. Philippians 3.8, the Apostle Paul considers everything loss compared to the greatness of Christ. Everything is considered rubbish, he says, that I may gain Christ. And so we seek to lay aside those hindrances because of the beauty and the value and the loveliness of Christ our Lord. And the second calling, to sort of return to what we've touched on already, is a calling to perseverance, to run with endurance, again, verse 1. It can be easy to lose our enthusiasm for Christ. There is so much that can pull at our affections to cause us to lose zeal for the Lord. It matters how we start but it matters so much more how we end. Pastor McWilliams has said on a number of occasions that the job of the pastor and the elder as they shepherd God's people is to help them die well, to end the race well, to persevere faithfully unto the end. And so whether the temptations, the mockery of others who wonder about the odd priorities that you have in life who can't understand the things that you talk about and why you respond to trials so differently than the world around, you're interested in steadfastness and perseverance because you belong to the living God. And again, we don't run. I think this is worth saying again. We don't run to attain salvation because that has already been purchased for us and secured for us in Christ. Instead, we persevere because we long to bring glory to the God who has sent the eternal Son to die for us and to give us life. Thomas Brooks, in writing on perseverance, says the safety and security of the child lies not so much in the child's hanging about his mother's neck as in the mother's holding him fast in her arms. So our safety and security lie not so much in our weak holding upon Christ, but in Christ holding us fast in His everlasting arms. This is our glory and our safety, that Christ's left hand is always under us, and His right hand does always embrace us. And so the charge is to lay aside such hindrances, the sin that can so easily entangle, and to run with perseverance that race marked for us. And lastly, as we see in verse 2, look to Jesus. And there are many ways in which looking to Christ can be an encouragement to us. And we are to look to Christ as both the finisher of our faith, and we are to look to Christ as the exemplar, the example of our faith. 
Let's think about each of those for a moment. Christ as finisher and Christ as exemplar. First, look to Him because He is the finisher for you. He has finished that race on your behalf. He is the founder as the ESV captures it or the captain. The same word is used in Hebrews 2 verse 10. Jesus there is called the founder of our salvation. We see it again in Acts 3.15. He is the founder or the author of life. Here, the founder of our faith. And so faith, life, salvation, Jesus is the founder of all. And as the captain of our salvation, He does not lead us down a path that He has not already gone. It's as though He has forged through that thick brush, as though He has cut a path through that jungle that our sin created. And He's not just the founder in terms of its origin, but He is the completer. He is the finisher of our faith. He is the Alpha and He is the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the author, the perfecter, the finisher. And how has He done all of this? He endured the cross. He despised its shame. And He sat down at the right hand of the Father. He alone endured the cross. We have the encouragement of so many around us to press on, to persevere in the Christian life, but Jesus did all of this alone. He did what no one else could do as He was forsaken upon the cross. He was derided and He was mocked. He was treated with contempt and He was accused of deceiving others and teaching falsehood. His teaching was opposed at every point. His own betrayed Him. He was handed over and He was spat upon. He was struck in the face. The crown of thorns was shoved down upon His brow. His back was torn with scourging. He was stripped of His garments and He was nailed to the cross, enduring all of this for us. And He did more. He despised its shame. The Roman cross was among the most shameful means of execution ever devised, reserved only for the most heinous of criminals and lowly outcasts. There was no lower depth of humiliation. From those who witnessed this form of execution, they called it the most brutal and horrifying torture. But as excruciatingly painful as the cross was, Philip Edgecombe Hughes points out that it was the shame of the cross as Jesus bore the sins of the world that was infinitely more intense than the pain of the cross. Others may have suffered the physical pain of crucifixion. There were, of course, one on either side of Jesus. But He alone has endured the shame of human depravity in all of its foulness and degradation as He drank to the very fullness the cup of God's wrath. But, of course, this wasn't the end. He endured the cross. He despised its shame. And then He sat at the right hand of the Father. And verse 2, I think, really captures the whole spectrum of Christ's earthly work, from His incarnation to His suffering and humiliation to His death and burial in the tomb to His resurrection and ascension on high, where He is now seated at the right hand of the Father seated in that place of exaltation, reigning as the eternal Son of God, seated because He has made purification for sins, Hebrews 1, 3, 
seated because of the finality of his priestly work, Hebrews 10, 12. And why did Jesus do all of this? Well, for the joy that was set before him. He did not turn from that path. He never abandoned his mission. He never turned from the mockery of others. He never retaliated or even spoke a word in his defense, for he would be shown only to be righteous and holy, innocent in all of his ways. But he willingly did all of this for the glory of his Father in heaven to secure your salvation not just to secure salvation, not just to make salvation a possibility, but to secure your salvation, to die for a chosen, dearly loved people. This joy before Him is the joy of securing the redemption of His elect people, joy over every lost sinner who repents, joy over every lost sheep who is found Joy over every son who was thought dead who has returned alive, Luke 15. And what blessed wonder that it is our Savior who is awaiting us. The very Savior who has prepared the way has prepared us to come to Him. We had a wedding this past week here at Covenants. One of the things that I try to say to the groom when we're back in the chapel before we come out for the beginning of the ceremony is something like this, that you're about to have this once-in-a-lifetime experience that most closely resembles what we read in Revelation chapter 19 about what will happen on that final day when the bride comes and is presented to her bridegroom. You are that bridegroom awaiting your bride who has been prepared for you, and she has been preparing all day. Undoubtedly, she woke up while it was still dark with butterflies in her stomach, surrounded by her attendants all day, pampering her and preparing her. But she has not just prepared that day, but she has been preparing for years to come to be presented to you. And as the back doors of the church open, as much as everyone else is amazed at her radiant beauty and her friends are trying to wave to her, give her the thumbs up, say hello, she doesn't look at them because she's not there for them. Her gaze is fixed upon you because she is coming to be presented to you. It is Jesus, our Savior, who has clothed us with His radiant gown of righteousness and He is the faithful one who longs for that glorious day when we, the church, will come to be presented to Him. Scripture calls this the consummation in which we will be with Him for all of eternity. This is the great joy of the Christian life, not only following Jesus but being with Him, not just trusting Him but being satisfied with Him. Charles Hodge puts it like this, the whole inward life of the believer is sustained by this looking unto Christ. The whole inward life, all of the turmoil and struggles and doubts and perplexities that go on in mind and heart, the inward life is sustained by looking to Jesus. But not only is He the finisher but He is also the exemplar. 
He is the example of our faith, as we see there in verse 3. Consider Him. And maybe there are times in your life when you go through great and very significant trial, and the temptation is for you to look at your cup of hardship and assume that it is much fuller than your fellow Christian. Maybe you're tempted to think that no one knows the trials that you are going through, that no one can really identify with your hardship. Look to Christ and look to the cup that He drank for you. This is, we could say, the divine antidote against weariness. He endured far, far worse than anything that you will ever endure, anything that you will ever be called to suffer. When you are weary in your mind because of the trials or injuries from the enemies of God, consider Christ, and this will drive out that murmuring, that impatience, that grumbling disposition within. As you make the appropriate comparison between what He endured and your struggles, that will surely help to address some of that inward turmoil that we experience. And so, look to the wondrous example of Christ our Lord. Look to the example that He sets for us as He lives a life of complete dependence upon His Father in heaven, in which it is said that His food is to do the will of His Father in heaven. Look at how He lived a life of constant communion with His Father. He spends all day teaching and responding to questions and performing miraculous healings, and then rises early in the morning to spend that time of devotion in prayer with His Father. Look at how He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Father. Look at how He lived a life of confidence toward the future. Once more from Ryle, Ryle says, today is the cross, but tomorrow is the crown. Today is the labor, but tomorrow is the wages. Today is the sowing, but tomorrow is the harvest. Today is the battle, but tomorrow is the rest. Today is the weeping, but tomorrow is the joy. And what is today compared to tomorrow? Today is but 70, 80, 90 years at best, but tomorrow is eternity. Be patient and hope unto the end. Gerhardus Voss says that everything in this race ought to be determined by the future. And so look to Christ, the finisher and the exemplar of your faith. At the conclusion of our service, we're going to sing a hymn together that's an insert in your bulletin, a hymn by John Newton. And let me close by reading through that as you give time, perhaps during the offertory, to meditate upon the truth of what is captured here in this wonderful hymn by Newton. Rejoice, believer in the Lord, who makes your cause His own. The hope that's built upon His Word shall never be overthrown. Though many foes beset your road and feeble is your arm, your life is hid with Christ and God beyond the reach of harm. Weak as you are, you shall not faint, or fainting shall not die. For Jesus, strength of every saint, will aid you from on high. Though unperceived by mortal sense, faith sees Him always near, a guide, a glory, a sure defense, then what have you to fear? As surely as He overcame, 
and triumphed once for you, so surely you that love His name shall triumph in Him too. This is the truth and the comfort that we find in the Word of the Lord. May the Lord be pleased to work such persevering grace in the lives of His children.